0: You're listening to a May 2016 podcast from the strategy and corporate finance practice at McKinsey & Company. I'm Dennis Swinford, editor. In this podcast, McKinsey's Emily Yua and Tim Kohler speak with Werner Rem about the practice of selling off a company's accounts receivables in order to raise immediate capital or mitigate risk, otherwise known as factoring. What is it? How does it work? And under what circumstances should a company factor or not? Let's turn first to Werner for a fuller definition. So I want to start out maybe with a little bit of a definition of what we're going to talk about and then asking you, Tim, why sort of in a perfect world would a company ever do this? Factoring is basically when a company sells its accounts receivables to a third party, um, which we're probably going to call the factor here. And that factor provides liquidity against the receivables, also collects a fee, maybe some interest, might or might not take on some of the risk. And effectively, the factor collects the money from whoever owns the company money, be it a supplier or somebody else. So maybe on a very high level, Tim, top down from technical, theoretical almost perspective, why would anybody ever do that?
1: In a perfectly competitive world with everybody knew lots of information and everybody had the same risk tolerances, there wouldn't be any need for factoring. There's a lot of administrative legal costs that are associated with factoring. So therefore the cost of borrowing from factoring is typically higher for many companies than their borrowing cost if they just were to issue corporate bonds. So in theory, it's something that particularly large companies wouldn't do. However, the world isn't, you know, perfectly competitive. There are situations where companies may not want to take on certain risks. Not every company is investment grade. And so sometimes they need capital quickly, or they need capital, and maybe it's the only way they can get it. So what's interesting about factoring is not the question about whether factoring is the right thing to do or not. It's under what circumstances does it make sense for a company to considering factoring as a financing approach?
0: Public companies think it makes sense. The market is somewhere north of two trillion euros, so that's two point five trillion U.S. dollars you looked in depth a little bit into these trade-offs for factoring. When we hear Tim talk about risks, information imbalance, costs, what kind of things have you found?
2: Sure. I think Tim brings up a great framing for the question, really under what conditions, what circumstances would it make sense and would it be attractive for an institution to really consider factoring? And we looked at this for a number of different types of industries. A couple of things really struck us. The first is what is the nature of the business that you are currently operating in, right? So if you are a car manufacturer, it's very different from if you were a pharmaceutical industry and your ability to actually factor in the countries where you're experiencing the greatest risk exposures are probably dictated by the mission or the values of your institution in some degree, because it's closely linked to your reputational risk. Another thing is the cost of factoring, right? How much is it for you to raise debt in a purely simple non-factoring world versus that if you were to factor? And I think the third is even broader, right? What type of factoring are you trying to price? Beyond recourse, non-recourse, there's notified, non-notified, there's in-house factoring, reverse factoring, external factoring, et cetera. The list goes on and on. There's about 20 different types of factoring that you consider, all with different varying price points and also operational implications for your organization.
0: Well, I would add to that probably the Risk, right? I mean, at the extreme, and maybe it's easiest to talk about that first, there might be receivables that you will never be able to factor under any circumstance because you sold to somebody exactly. who's basically not creditworthy, right? So that's, you know, to to a certain Absolutely. extent, you would like to get rid of that risk, but nobody might take it, right? Absolutely. Let me ask and a
1: question. I can... Under what circumstances, let me put it this way, can you just sort of describe the kind of situations where... Someone else is better able to take on the risk of a certain receivable than the company that sold the product. You know, is it because of the factors familiarity with the local market versus the company, et cetera? What are the kinds of things where someone else is often able to better take on that risk?
2: What we're seeing in a lot of different markets is there's been a liquidity crunch for a variety of different external factors. Two things that really stood out to us when we looked at countries and, frankly, conditions in which a bank was able or actor was able to take on the risk better. One, where they were able to see the entire portfolio of a customer. So, for example, if you're CFO of a company who is trying to factor the debt of your largest customer in a country like Greece, for example, or Russia, or most recently in sub-Saharan Africa, it may be difficult for you to have the full view of what your customer owes. And when we work with local banks, we're able to sometimes get the fuller view of the other liens and other assets, frankly, that they have. Now, the challenge of that is questioning, you know, what do you know or what does a bank know about your customer that is truly competitive? In other words, what we sometimes see is that we're able to hold tremendous amounts of debt for our customers in large geographies where no bank is willing to factor them, despite the fact that they are factory-grade. Sometimes they're even, you know, A-, and yet there's nobody willing to factor them. And so there are still questions out there where, despite a bank having the full view, it's very difficult to actually ascertain exactly what is driving that lack of willingness to absorb the additional risk.
0: Are you saying that when you, let's pick Africa, so you're selling to a customer in Africa, you create the receivable, there is a market, or this is an example where you would find somebody to take on that risk because they are a local bank and they understand the risk better than you do because maybe you are just growing in Africa and just don't have the presence to even collect?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. We see that a lot, actually, in Africa, because, you know, the customers are sometimes local enterprises that have multiple names, right? And so it's very difficult to trace the full thread of all the different subsidiaries that they hold. We see that a lot in developing economies.
0: So this is basically information imbalance. Tim earlier said, right, part of what in the real world out there is an information imbalance, and this is one way to overcome it. So it occurs to me that in that conversation, Emily, this recourse versus non-recourse is important, right? Because the non-recourse, obviously, I get rid of all the risk. It's more expensive, but I collect immediately and I get rid of all the risk and I probably have to trade it off versus some sort of receivable insurance. Versus if I have recourse factoring, I'm still you know, responsible for most of those, meaning if company I'm working with or the bank I'm working with doesn't collect, I still take the loss basically on my receipt. So how do you think about that? In what circumstances would you go to one versus the other?
2: So we're actually seeing quite a bit of this. You're spot on, right? It's kind of a strange phenomenon because in many ways, why would you pay a premium, oftentimes you know, two, three points above your existing cost of capital already, to actually still do recourse factoring because you're still holding the debt? And the truth of the matter is there are certain countries where you simply cannot get a single non-recourse factor to take on your risk. So for example, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you have, let's say, $500 million of debt in the country of Greece, you can't stop shipping medication to that country. The nature of your business dictates that you continue to save lives because that's what you do. And so in those instances, recourse factoring may be the best option that you have. What is also interesting, which I think you know speaks to other types of factoring, is that when you have a recourse factoring like that, what you often find is that institutions like Pharmacos will even opt to do in-house factoring. In this form of factoring, you not only hold the risk, but you continue to do the insourcing of calls, you handle all the payment collections, et cetera. So you actually still absorb the operational costs of conducting the factoring yourself. So there are great lengths that we see our clients go to, continue to hold the reins, so to speak, of maintaining the ties to their customers, even though they're exploring options and factoring.
0: On the in-house factoring point, what is the advantage of that?
2: So it's interesting because it's form of factoring where the customer, where the institution continues to hold all of the accounts and call the customers themselves. They do the collections themselves. The main benefit of doing something like that is to essentially hold the relationship close so that they don't actually necessarily even have to make transparent to the customer that they have been factored.
0: When you say in-house factoring, there's still a factor, an external factor involved, right?
2: You're precisely correct, Werner. Factoring is still happening. The only difference is that the in-house part denotes who is actually handling the operational process of the collection. So in this instance, if your pharma co is trying to do in-house factoring, they own the receivables. They just want to make sure that they're holding the relationship of the customer constant so that there's no bank reaching out to their customers. And sometimes the process of being factored is completely opaque to the customer because the institution is still doing the collections
1: themselves. Emily, a follow-on question on that. that In the case of in-house factoring, can you describe a situation where the added cost of the factoring is still worth it to the company that you know originally sold the product and owns the receivable?
2: We've seen a few instances where this actually works quite well. One, where we see a particular customer hold a significant share. Of the accounts receivables. In other words, they hold something like 10, 15, or even 20% of total accounts receivables. And so you know that this is a huge customer and you know that maintaining strong ties to that customer is going to be paramount to your continued business, right? So I think that's one. Another situation that we've seen this being done is actually where we see customers who may be going through some type of transition. So, for example, we see two customers who may be engaged in a merger situation or a customer who may be you know is out on the market with a competitive bid to one of your competitors. So whenever we see or are aware of a potential transition that's about to happen.
0: What about the whole question about capital tied up in accounts receivable? I mean in the end when we are thinking about things like return on capital driving value as you grow, the balance sheet does eat up capital, this is a way to get cash earlier, right? Even at the same risk, a customer, maybe for a little fee, but I get the cash in earlier, therefore my return on capital from the reported balance sheet goes up. It's got to be a good thing, right?
1: What I hear you saying, Werner, is if I can take the receivables off my balance sheet, and therefore my capital base declines, my return on capital will go up. Isn't that a good thing? Yes. From a pure accounting sense, if you're capital goes down. By the way, though, your numerator would also go down a little bit because there's a cost of factoring, right? And so you would have lower operating profits as a result of that factoring as well. So uh, so the impact is not simply by reducing the capital base. However, a couple of things to consider. One is investors can see the amount of factoring you're doing because typically the description of the kind of factoring you're doing, the magnitudes are described in the footnotes to your financial statement. So, you know, if they see that, they may take into consideration that as a form of borrowing. And also, I think depending upon the counting rules, depending upon how much recourse there is back to you, you may not actually be able to realize that full benefit in terms of the return on capital. But I think the bigger issue is the one that investors can see that you are factoring the magnitude. So they're less likely to think that you have a better return on capital than your peers or whatever, just because of that.
0: When you do sort of financial analysis, when you try to compare two companies, are you trying to reverse the effects of factoring in the return on capital analysis?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. In other words, if I wanted to compare two companies on a like-for-like basis, I would really try to understand the effectiveness of the operating performance by including factored receivables. There may be some exceptions, you know, where it's purely non-recourse in Risky countries where someone else really has a benefit, where I might not take that into consideration, but oftentimes you want to take into consideration that factoring when you're comparing the, the performance versus peers.
0: So, Emily, there's some benefit, obviously, on balance sheet, but when we think about I'm clearly saving some interest payments, say, because I have to finance capital, I should say, because I would have to finance these receivables in another way. I probably save some administrative costs, at least if I give it all away, if I don't do anything in-house. I do not need credit insurance. Right. On the other hand, right, I have obviously the cost because I give the factor some money up front, you know, in whatever way that's defined. Right. And I have, a Tim set up front, some administrative costs also associated with factoring and some legal costs because it renews. Right. Because I get new receivables in. What is the most important driver here and where did you see this work out on the positive side for our company? Right. In other words, what are the segments or the clusters where you would actually absolutely do this?
2: Yes. Yeah. You're asking a really timely question because there are a couple of, I would say, themes around the clusters, right? So I think one of the key themes where we have seen a cluster of countries such as Brazil, Russia, Greece, for example, is where we see tremendous destabilization of currency. And when that happens, what you really begin to see is because the currency is so unstable, you're really not able to find very many customers who are actually going to make payments in a regular, consistent manner. So in other words, right, payment delays are going to trend up and they're expected to continue to climb. In those situations, I think if you are able to find an institution to factor there, it's a no regret move. You should absolutely do so. Other situations where both political and economic risks come into play are countries where there's been a regime shift, Also, when you look on the flip side of government organizations like Greece, like hospitals, right, et cetera, we talked a little bit earlier about certain industries that are particularly susceptible to those types of customer groups, clusters, if you will. You know, you are not necessarily the first institution which a government is necessarily going to pay. They have other sort of common goods that they actually need to provide to their people, which your organization may or may not be on the top of that list. So those are just a couple of the key clusters of situations that would really drive a natural no-regret factoring decision. Now, the question then becomes, at what cost, right? I think, Tim, you talked about this a little bit earlier. What is the threshold of that cost for you to consider factoring? And always going to be higher than your cost of capital.
1: So could you describe for us some circumstances where you should be willing to pay that extra cost in light of what you were just saying?
2: So let me describe a situation that I actually just recently found ourselves in. So imagine that you're a company who has a single large customer who holds about 20% of your volume year over year. And because of that, they hold a very concentrated presence in a major geography of theirs they have a huge reticence frankly to factor this customer for a variety of reasons that we already talked about they want to make sure that the customer's happy they don't want to make the customer rattled or feel like they're financially unstable in any way so obviously huge reticence to factor the challenge now is that because the accounts receivables have climbed to a number that you know is just their credit management organizations very uncomfortable they have now been forced essentially to explore options for factoring and interestingly no bank in that geography is willing to take that on not a single institution and we could list all the major banks right not a single institution after a two month search they finally found one bank who's willing to factor but at a very high premium bearing in mind that they had up till now not even found a single insurer willing to insure them the question then becomes how bad does the information asymmetry need to be in order for you as a institution to be willing to pay that premium? What does that bank know? What do all the banks in your market that you actually play in know? And what do you know that's different? Because all three parties have ultimately made a different decision about the value it is to collect.
0: So that raises an interesting question about the, the opposite side, right? When would you never factor? I guess would be the right way to put it. So for instance, I could imagine I'm a cash-rich company and all my customers are triple A rated companies. Nobody holds more than 5% of my receivables. Why would I factor?
2: I would argue, you know, what is ultimately the objective function that you're trying to optimize for? Is it cash? Is it liquidity? You know, is it increasing OPEX? What is it that you're actually trying to optimize for? I think that ultimately drives whether or not factoring is necessarily a good decision. The other thing to consider is some organizations still view factoring in a reputationally risky fashion, right? It wasn't so long ago that many organizations actually shied away from ever talking about factoring.
0: Emily, where do I start if I'm a CFO? I'm not factoring right now. Where do I start in the analysis and the process of thinking about should I or should I not do this? How do you structure sort of a you know, rough work plan if you want
2: so for us, I think factoring is something that is probably the most simple tool that you can explore. The first is really just to take a quick look at your customer base and look at the you know days outstanding of your accounts receivables and begin by simple segmentation of where your customers currently fall what we typically recommend is if you are seeing tremendous outliers 120 days and a higher you know 240 days and higher those are probably the initial priority segments that you can begin to target and then what we would recommend is a simple prioritization of that segment the high DSO days outstanding segment to really begin to look at what their ratings are if they are anything below let's say a triple B plus is there an opportunity for you to explore taking that segment and Exploring what markets they currently sit in. And by markets, we mean geography, political stability, economic stability, and really beginning to look at your existing banks that service you to see whether or not there's an appetite to absorb some of that risk. What you'd want to avoid is starting that discussion with your customer before you've actually done all of this work for a variety of reasons. But the most prominent one is because it often leads to a series of questions and conversations with your customers that you may not yet be prepared to have, such as, you know, are you in a liquidity crunch? (laughs) So we really try to recommend that you take about, you know, three to six months to do some of that exploration. We say three more realistically, six, because there are some markets where, as we mentioned earlier. You just are not able to find the institution that's willing to take on that risk. How do customers react when you factor their receivables? I know you
1: mentioned in some cases you don't want the customers to know it's an important relationship, but in general, is that a big issue, how the customers react, or or is that not an issue?
2: I think that there's typically two reactions that we've seen customers have. One, which is sort of an inward looking one, which is, you know, is there something about our relationship that has changed that makes you less trustworthy of the financial stability of our relationship? And then the second one is what is going on with you, your organization, that's making you explore this as a means of collecting cash more quickly? Neither of these topics are ones which I would recommend having without first, you know, having all the facts of whether or not this is truly a relationship that you need to factor. And also, I would even involve, you know, your communications team or any other team's investor relations team to really build a message around why you're factoring, why now, why with this particular customer before you arc on that decision point, which is why coming back to our earlier discussion about non-transparent factoring or, you know, um, in-house factoring, that's why there are different different options for factoring so that you may not need to disclose to the extent to which you're factoring all of your customers.
0: That rounds the circle very nicely. So thank you very much for the conversation, Emily Temp.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, everyone.